0: Hey, y'all. It's me, Adriana. I just wanted to hop on real quick before this episode and let you guys know a couple of different things. One, I have started a community where we do talk about mental health specifically, and it has options for you to connect with other people who are locally to you and in your area that are also going through the exact same stage of treatment that you're in. And, and you get the bonus of weekly material that will allow you to continue to process what you're going through and help you assimilate and heal from that. We also have small support groups. They're very small, intimate groups where you have the opportunity to meet other parents who are going through the same stage of treatment as your child, whether it be in treatment or off treatment or bereavement. And in this group, you get an opportunity to process everything that you're going through face-to-face virtually with people across the world really and and if that's not your jam then there's ways to connect online just virtually through messaging boards and also we also run a book club that gives you the opportunity to read through material it also allows us to process and assimilate everything that we've gone through through material of other authors that have written and gone through trials and tribulations. So join us in any and or all of these communities that Family Chemotherapy now offers and if you want more one-on-one attention, reach out to me and I would be glad to help you. Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, a corner for parents and caretakers fighting and surviving pediatric cancer. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hi, and welcome to Family Chemotherapy. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Uh, Today, I'm super excited about this topic and our guest, um... I'm going to try my best not to be super awkward about this. And obviously, because it's such a sensitive topic, I feel like, you know, it's a that taboo topic that people don't really want to talk about. Um, we're talking about sex today, sex and dealing with a child in pediatric cancer. And um, I really am going to try not to be super awkward because, you know, there's only so much privacy that I can really um, share on my part without like crossing those, you know, boundaries with my spouse. So I'm going to keep it very simple. And I've kind of gathered some questions that I'm ready to ask our guest today. And I've kind of listened to things that other families have been struggling with and just thinking about how people have worked through this. Um, So I'm ready to welcome our new guest. It's Miss Jenna Mountain. She is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Texas, a certified sex therapist, a certified sex educator, and she's also EMDR trained therapist. Um, welcome, Jenna. And I'm going to let you kind of share a little more
1: about yourself and tell me about um, a little bit about you. Yeah. Um, so yes, I'm all those things, and um, <laughs> which, is, which is fun um, in a lot of ways. I also co-own a, a group private practice in Richardson, Texas called Aspen House Associates, um, which uh, for for me, my business partner was really um, kind of a dream baby mm-hmm. <laughs> that got to come to life. Uh, we, you know, um, what people may not understand is that, you know, we really d- create Aspen House to just be rich and be the big group practice owner and all of that. We created Aspen House because that was the environment we wanted to work in. And so we have a team uh, currently of uh, nine clinicians, including us and um probably getting ready to add two or three more um to our team so pretty pretty good size practice and you know, one of the things that we hire for is, um, a trauma-informed therapists. Um, we do, we are kind of known as an EMDR, uh, group. And so, um, all of our people are trained in EMDR. And then from there, that's kind of baseline. Everybody kind of niches out in a different direction. And so we have sex therapists, we have play therapists, we have a grief specialist. We have family systems therapists that really lean into having every, you know, part of the family member of the family in the room. Um, and so, yeah, we have we have a a, a variety of counselors um, and um, and actually one of our funnest uh, ads of the last year is we now have a bilingual therapist. So oh, that's been awesome. um, Yes. Yeah, very exciting. We love Abby. She's um, amazing and wonderful. So, yeah. So um, Aspen House Associates um, I also serve as the academic director. Uh, for Sexual Wholeness, um, which is a faith-based organization that trains and certifies a variety of uh, professionals in human sexuality, specifically therapists, but we also train and uh, certify sex educators. So I actually serve as like the person who is maintaining quality assurance of um, all those processes and the educational, you know, curriculum and all those things. So I think those are the the big things. I am married. I have two uh, young children and uh, live here in the greater Dallas area. So I think that's probably me in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, that's so awesome. A really interesting fact is I met Jenna back in like, was it seventh grade? I would say it's middle school. It's at least middle school. Yeah. Yeah. I think seventh grade. Um, and Jenna is actually the person who was the godsend who basically reached out to me one day when I was literally thinking those few days before she called me, um, about going into a counseling program. And Jenna reached out to me. She wasn't even trying to say, Hey, you should do this. She was just like, Hey, I wanted to let you know, this is what I'm doing. And I wanted to basically network. And if you know anyone that's interested in joining this counseling program, you let me know and send them my way. And ironically, because I was thinking about it those days, I was like, oh my gosh, this is totally a sign from God. I'm that person. <laughs> I am that person. <laughs> I am the person. <laughs> so um, this, that's basically the catalyst that got me into the yeah. counseling program. And so I know Jenna and I know Jenna's passion for sex therapy because that was long into grad school when I started doing yeah. that school with Jenna. She yes. loved, loved Certain classes that we had to take on human
1: sexuality and yeah, um, I fought for those. Those were not there, um, and I, I I don't take sole credit for that, but um, I was one of a handful of voices at the good old Baptist graduate school <laughs> that said, <laughs> guys, we have to talk about sex. We've got to, you know, as therapists, we need to we need training in this. And there's an organization that does it well that I now work for. That's so, so awesome yes.
0: because yes. that was absolutely one of my favorite classes. And I know like when I started thinking about family chemotherapy, I started thinking, what are all the different topics in the different areas of our lives that have been affected because of pediatric cancer? And immediately one of the topics I knew I had to talk about was sex therapy, um, or just sex, sorry, not sex therapy, but just sex. And I was like, how is our life, our sex life affected by pediatric, pediatric cancer. And so um, I knew that I had to ask you because I knew how much you loved.
1: I do love this
0: side of therapy. And so, um, I'm super excited, like so excited. I've been like jumping for joy for the past few months when I knew I was going to get to have <laughs> you on here. I was like, yes. So, um, there are some really interesting things though. Um, and I'm going to basically jump into the conversation and start yeah. talking to you a little bit about. Um, what I see are some of the issues that come up in homes when we're faced with pediatric cancer. Um, mm-hmm. and it's all basically general from what I've seen through my observation or even some, you know, by experience. And so,, um, when you get that diagnosis mm-hmm. that your child has pediatric cancer, that trauma really hits the home and it hits your. Every aspect of your life and especially your sex life, um, you end up being in this world, in this mental state of mind that you are like, What do I do with this? Like, you know, s- sex is something that people, you know, they have sex with their significant other to feel connected, mm-hmm. also for enjoyment, right? And for pleasure, for fun, for pleasure, yeah, for fun, mm. connection, and all of the above. And how do you? like when we were faced with this, it's like, how do you even process yeah. how you <clears throat> engage in sex and intimacy with your partner when you're, when your child is literally fighting for their life? And there's that element, you know, I'm just kind of spot out some of these things and I'm going to yeah. let you yeah. <laughs> out about it. Um, so, you know, when you're, there's that aspect of it, the element of how do we go about handling our sex life? Um, Then when you're actually in treatment and you're going through hospital stay after clinic appointments, and you're just in and out of the hospital and clinics all week long, some people literally live in the hospital for months on end while their kid is under extreme chemo treatment. Um, Half the time people are too tired. like Not just physically tired, but emotionally tired to even Mm -hmm. engage in the thought of like, how do we handle this? You know, yeah. um, And so that leads to people not really being in the mood and they're just too worried or too depressed and too anxious about mm-hmm. what's going on in with their ch- child's life. And it makes it really hard for a parent to navigate mm-hmm. how to engage in sex, or if you should even do it, if it's something that you should just put on the back burner for like a year or two while your kid's in treatment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that might work for some people, but then one spouse might resent that. And so um, I'm going to turn it over to you. Cause I feel like I just kind of
1: unloaded a few topics. Top <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're setting the scene. You're doing yeah. this great. <laughs> so
0: I'm going to let you give us some good advice and some food for thought.
1: Yeah. So generally when um, I get asked about when sex is not working, um, there can be a lot of reasons, um, and so I, I think one of the most important things um, that I I like trying to, to reteach our communities and uh, society at large is that sex is complex. I, I think we get in a lot of trouble when we try to oversimplify um, how we experience our sexuality and how the sexual process exists between two people. Um <clears throat> And and I say that because some of the things that you're going into are the complexity of sex. I mean, sex doesn't just you know, sit over here in a silo and in a vacuum where the rest of life doesn't touch it. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's true for everybody. That's not just true for families who are battling uh, some form of cancer together. Uh, that is true for everybody. So anytime I look at the, con- anytime that I'm working with a sex therapy case, I am looking at the entire context of life. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you, and you were kind of, although I think there's some other things at play, you're kind of going into like, like this kind of makes you not want sex for some, for some spouses, for some partners. And then for others, it does Um, that that's still on the table for them. Um, There are so many things that contribute to how we experience our sexual desire and our sexual drive. Um, No one thing holds it up or kills it. No one thing. Um, But when you have several factors, you have um, uh, the, the emotional factors of a family going through this, uh, as a parent, when you have the, um, physiological factors, the fatigue, the, um, I, I am assuming, I mean, I have not personally walked this journey. Um, but based on people I've worked with and just uh, knowing your story, Adriana, like your self-care flies straight out the window. I mean, one of the very first things in pretty I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to risk saying easier cases of sex therapy. We're still adjusting self-care like, Hey, how much, how much sleep are you getting? And how are you eating? And like, what's your physical activity look like? And, you know, what are you doing emotionally to take care of yourself? Well, that typically flies right out the window for parents who are walking with a child going through um, this, this battle, the storyline. And so all of the basic things that positively hold up sexual desire or drive are falling apart um, not to mention the very unique things about, um, battling pediatric cancer as a parent, but, but I probably any cancer story, which is the fear, the shock, mm-hmm. uh, the trauma of it, the grief, uh, it's very complicated grief. Um, and so, and, and you just don't have bandwidth for yourself. So it, it would not surprise me at all, um, that this would become a challenge, um, Now, one of the things that you sort of started to allude to, I'll say, is this idea that spouses can be having a different experience. Now that exists even, you know, outside of this topic of pediatric cancer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I want to, I want to say it that way for a very specific reason. We look at the biggest, most blaring thing in our life and we give it sometimes full responsibility for everything that's not going well. And I think sometimes that's unhelpful in our um in our process. So that would exist for almost every other couple <laughs> that is not going through pediatric cancer. Yeah. And so um I tell couples all the time that end up having some form of sexual dysfunction, some of the things that we're going to learn to walk to walk through healing this are the things that really every couple should have to learn, but they have not had anything enter into their lives that has forced them to do it. They're, they are, because they do not have this, this dysfunction or this trauma or whatever it is. They are not being bothered enough to go do the really good work of learning how to have a healthy sexual relationship that looks at all these factors. Um, And so Some of the things that I would say to the parents going through this are the things I would say to everybody, but, but the parents going through the battle that you are kind of painting a picture of, it has been brought more to their awareness because of the battle that they find themselves in. But these are the things that everybody should be doing. Like the things that we're going to talk about are what everybody should be doing. Okay. Um, and so that's where it's like, yes, the battle of pediatric cancer is probably going to be the thing that drives parents to, um, to hopefully pay attention to these things. I don't think everybody makes that choice, um, when they, when they find themselves struggling, but, but it is typically something that is really painful that drives couples to start asking these questions. And in this particular case, it is my child is going through this. This battle with cancer, and it is affecting all of us and now I can I, now all of the things are blaring and firing off and mm-hmm. and I just and and I just think that's an important kind of baseline part of the conversation yeah no you're right
0: it's you know when you say that I guess what comes to mind for me is our view on sex right mm-hmm. like how people perceive sex in in their life is it something that's pleasure is it for connection is it for um you know, for some people it's like obligation and duty, unfortunately. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. Or need. Yeah.
0: I hear that word a lot. Yeah. And so, um, I think it definitely, when you speak, it makes me think like it makes, it forces us to have to take a look at our, our worldview on sex in our own Mm -hmm. relationships. So, um, I'll give it back to you. Cause I know you were gone. Yeah. Somewhere. Well,
1: and, and it, and I I just want to say, and I hope this is validating. Um, it's such an unfair circumstance as if these families, and these parents don't have enough to carry. Yeah. Now you're going to be forced to get down on a granular level and drill down on what are the gaps in our, our, you know, relationship and our intimacy and our connection and our lovemaking. Like I I sit back and listen to the conversation as we're having it going. And that's super unfair as if you guys don't have enough to do, right? Like, let, now we're going to have to really drill down into the nuances of our relationship, which is really vulnerable and hard work and and, oh and painful at times. And so I'm going, yeah, yeah, I just gave you another assignment. That probably felt good to everybody. Like, <laughs> but, I, but it, is, it is true. It's in, in average couples who are not facing some traumatic experience, they really should be doing these things too. Um, Yeah. Let me talk about some of the facets, excuse me, that, that you started to bring up. Um, uh, One of them being time, you know, a, a healthy and good sex life. Um, It's not that you um, even the, again, I'm going to use the word average couple, you know, with children Mm -hmm. um, have to battle to fight for time to protect it and feel like they have less of that. Um, This just gets exacerbated. Um, by this experience. I mean, we're talking about when, and, and Adriana, you're going to have to illuminate this for me. Sure. Um, but if you end up being one of those families that lives at the hospital, when do two parents have time together? For, for, I mean, like, this is, is this actually, when I, I don't know that story. Like, is it even physically possible where you have some time off where I I don't know, somebody else is at the hospital spending time with your your little one. And I mean, how does that work? So pre-COVID, I would say
0: yes. Um, There would be, you know, a grandparent could come and sit. Um, But during COVID, most hospitals are only letting one parent be in the hospital at a time. And parents can only literally, like for us, when I would have to do a quote shift change of some sort with Ricky, um, I would have to meet him downstairs in the lobby. And because Evan is so little and we're doing a shift change during like the thick of the, the yucky, when you think of chemo, like all the, you know, the side effects of it. Um, so that interaction for us was like, here's a spat out of where we're at. I'll text you, call me if the nurse comes up and we'll, you know, cause I'm, I'm the caretaker in that situation. Like I'm the one, because i have been there, all the appointments, I'm the one who knows medications, the timing of the medication questions to ask. Um, and so, you know, that interaction with my spouse literally is like a minute and then we're, you know, passing each other and giving the high five and saying, good luck. Call me if you're not wanting,
1: you're not wanting him to be up there any longer than he has to by himself. Right.
0: So, um, I will say that for us, like that has been a huge struggle during COVID is finding time together. Um, other than the late night exhaustion after we've put all the kids to sleep, which that has our whole sleep routine has just gone out the window because sleep regression for all of my kids during, um, cancer treatment, but yeah, finding time has been really hard to connect. Um, you know, we have to keep our bubble really small and for people that are not necessarily fully socially distancing um with a high risk kid, you know? And so yeah, it's been a challenge to answer your question.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we we actually have something that you um so as a as a therapist, I would, I would be working with the couple to explore in some ways, what do I have control over and what what do I not have control over? And this would be a part of what you really don't have control over. Mm -hmm. Um and so, and this is where it gets this is where it gets complex okay, what, what do you, you know, as a counselor, I would say, I, I, if people are like, well, what do I do with that? My answer it's their choice. But I, I think the healthy answer at that point is you grieve because there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, okay. So now we're going to pile another layer of complicated grief on top of your already grief. Right. I mean, cause yeah. that's super present. Um, so I'll go down that rabbit trail for a second. Um, grief and trauma absolutely interrupt your sex life. Um, and everybody, you know, experiences that differently. But when we just think about the nervous system, um, you your nervous system has to be in a place to respond uh, to a degree, uh, to respond to to sexual stimuli. So there can be someone who can be emotionally uh, probably that more driven relationally, I want to have sex with you and their bodies just can't show up because what their nervous system is going through is just going to prevent the ability to physiologically function in the way they normally could. If that amount of stress and anxiety or fatigue, um, wasn't at play. And I, and I think that, um, And there's some cultural myths that we need to bump up against here because I think, so I think it was Helen Singer Kaplan, who um, is a, is a big name um, and contributor historically uh, to the field of sex therapy. She said once, and I, and I'm not quoting verbatim, but basically women would at at, a great deal of the time, they would benefit more from um, sleep therapy or a sleep study than they would from (laughs) sex therapy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I have colleagues in the field who are doing um, continued research, that still shows up as number one, if not in the top tier reasons why women struggle to want to have sex. So if you start talking about stress and fatigue and um overwhelm, they those are huge wet blankets for women. And part of that is because females are generally wired to be contextual. You and I were downloading a little bit before the podcast started. We, we are contextual. That is how we're wired. That is the gift that God gave the world through the female mind. We keep context and how everything is connected on the front burner. Uh, yes. The gift of the male mind is they can get really singular and focus, And that's not, a, neither is a flaw. Neither one is better than the other. We're all playing our part in keeping that way of seeing things on the front burner. Um, so clearly, if the context of a woman's life, of a female's life, is being riddled with a battle hard trauma grief it is just going to be hard for her to access anything that feels arousing um, or or desire i mean it's just going to be hard to find now let me switch over to men because i think this is where one of the myths the myth is um first of all hold on i'm going back women are not broken because of that that is female sexuality And I think that a lot of women feel like if I just can't feel sexual, despite all these things, because some men can, I'm, I'm the lesser sexual being. No, that is how God created you. You are a different sexual being and you are meant to be that way because we keep, we keep the context and the relational dynamics on the front burner. Um, But I do want to slide over to men for a second. Men can, and and this is what we love about men, they can have a sex box or a sex drawer, if you think of a trust of drawers, and they can pull Mm -hmm. it out and they can jump inside of it and actually stay pretty singularly focused. That is... That is one of their strengths. I actually wish I had a sex drawer. Okay, I mean, like I say that to my husband. Like I wish I did. I wish the context of life wasn't so distracting for me, and yeah, then it didn't show up and get in the way, you know. And I have a lot of women are like, yes, it'd be great to have a sex drawer. I want a sex box where I can just get in the box and nothing else distracts me from the experience. That'd be fantastic. Okay, but that is not our gifting. We can be distracted. We have to work on that. Um, <clears throat> but I will tell you this: at the intensity level that you described it, Adriana, there are going to be some men. their bodies are not going to show up to sex because even though they have a box and a drawer uh we have this cultural myth that penises can just blow through any brick wall of life they actually in fact cannot (laughs) you 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 put men in intense grief and intense trauma and their bodies will physically physiologically stop showing up um and and because we have these cultural myths there are some men who will then like go down the shame spiral of mm-hmm. oh i have some major sexual dysfunction i'm like no sir yep. you have depression like that <laughs> like you you are struggling with depression you are going through a trauma this is extensive grief yep. your penis doesn't want to have a party right now because it is not party time like it <laughs> is sad and heavy and and so but we have this cultural myth that men's testosterone and penises can just overcome anything and so they will shame spiral over that when we really need to validate and give permission like no this is hard um, however, <clears throat> I'll also say this because men's bodies are maintained by testosterone and just that regular flow of it. That's always showing up in the body. Mm-hmm. They still may experience assertive sexual drive and like a hunger for sex in the midst of some of that and where the threshold cuts off for a man at any given. I mean, we don't know that. Yeah. Um, uh, but they could still want sex and it doesn't mean they don't care about the other things they they have they have a little bit of um they have a little bit of an advantage because of the testosterone that runs through their body now please the, the women do not need to go out and get on testosterone like, I, just, <laughs> I know that's not then you'll just have an angry woman that doesn't help your sex life either um unless she really needs it that just makes her prickly and angry um doesn't work the same way in our bodies but So, and here's what I want to say. All of those situations under the, under the storyline that you're kind of sharing, Adriana, would be normal. And so all those battles. Um, And then we do have some women who experience their sex drive a little bit more assertively. And like, they are going to want for sex um, from a biological uh, perspective. So all of those are normal and you're going to find yourselves experiencing the trauma and the grief differently and having those battles. And like, so it's really the negotiation between the spouses that actually probably becomes the battleground if I were to guess.
0: Yeah, I would think so. Um, you know, for me personally, I remember thinking like, is it, is it okay to do this? Like, Mm. do we even talk about it? Do we, are we both silently on the same page where we kind of wait for a while? Like, you know, like it, it's just, mm-hmm. we, yeah, it was, it was a little weird. Well, I you're say. talking
1: about like the communication about sex kind of falling mm-hmm. off and, that's actually really hard for most couples. I mean, that's like baseline what we work on in sex therapy is like, hey, are you open openly talking about sex? Again, some couples can get away with having a pretty decent sex life without a lot of dialogue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But something's going to be, you know, uh the thing that kind of breaks that or puts pressure on that and all of a sudden you realize we don't talk about this and we're not just pulling it off by chance anymore and so we're going to yeah. have to be really intentional about talking about it. Um I do think that, I don't think this has to do with sex, um, a part of what you're saying, but the topic happens to be sex. So I'm going to ask you a question. You know, do you feel like as a parent who, who had a child in the middle of a cancer battle that you were allowed to have any pleasure, sex aside at all? Were you allowed to want to have fun? Were you allowed to have pleasure? Because I don't think that's just a sex question
0: you know i'm i'm like i'm going to be very vulnerable here it's like a therapy yeah. session <laughs> sorry i can't help it <laughs> um you know for me honestly um I, I i look back on where we started and how evan's treatment progressed and i can't tell you definitively if i thought one way before finding out he had no longer had a tumor. Um, or if we waited till after the tumor, I honestly can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know though, that those ideas did cross my mind. Like how could I, how could I want to become intimate with my spouse while my child is fighting for his life while my child could potentially be dying, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. it seems like to me, like I was going through those feelings of guilt. Like I want to connect with my husband. I enjoy connecting with Mm -hmm. my husband on a physical level, but am I allowed to do that? while my son is literally in the
1: worst place, you know?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so there's that sense. Was it, was it hard for you to let yourself do other things? that were like to want to do other things that were fun and enjoyable, even outside of, of, of sex and intimacy. Gosh,
0: you know, I'm going to say I had a hard time allowing myself to do anything. I literally, in those first few months, I was so incredibly hyper-focused on making sure we had the right treatment plan, making sure that we weren't missing anything that the oncologist may not have already suggested to us basically. And so um, that the first few months I literally was probably in like a pretty depressed state of mind, sure. you know, and there was one week where I literally, I was just like, I'm done. Like I'm done. I just, I can't Like keep a burnout level. I was burned out to the max. I was like, I can't deal with the emotions and the research because the research was not giving me the answer that I was looking for. And uh-huh. the answer that I wanted was that my son is going to be okay. Yeah, I get that definitive answer, right? Um, and could you give yourself permission to stop until you got that answer? I had to tell myself mm-hmm. it's out of my control, and that was yeah. that one week where I literally sat there. I remember sitting on my couch and I thought to myself, these past few days I have not wanted to cook. I'm in my pajamas. I like if you ask me to make a meal for my child. I would be like, I don't even want to think about making a meal. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that is too much to put on me emotionally, mentally, whatever, right? Like, oh, let me go serve my kids a meal. Like, it was just really a bad place this last, like that last week, I remember. And I finally said, Holy crap, I'm depressed. I am like, I've reached that point. It's before I was trying to manage it through like, You know, trying to regain a little bit of control in the little areas that I could in my life, being my child's treatment (laughs) and Mm -hmm. this treatment plan. Then I reached that point where I was like, I can't, I have no control. And this just sucks. And I'm depressed. And well,
1: and in that case, I would say sex is just one of many enjoyable, pleasurable things in life that probably you didn't feel like you had permission to do. And I think that's probably, um, important to point out because I think sometimes we treat a struggling sex life as like this it's just like this it's on this other level or other thing where I'm going in this case in this case it's just on the laundry list of everything that you didn't feel like you had permission to do. Like anything that was purely fun and relaxing and pleasurable and and just to help me enjoy myself or take a break or whatever it was. Like sex is just another thing on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the mentality is, I I cannot stop. I cannot ever put myself first. I cannot... Be, and in this case, the intensity level of that, because we can see that in other things, right? Like yeah. major work projects where people completely start to neglect themselves. And they're like, until I hit this marker, I cannot let up. I mean, people do that in work. People do that with um, uh, like entrepreneurs do that all the time. They just like sacrifice themselves to their new project. Um, there's all sorts of things that do that. In this case, the intensity level is, uh, is extreme because it, it is life and death. Yep. We treat things like life and death. Sometimes this was in fact, life and death. And so, um, and that's why it's like, as we unpack this, I would love for the listeners to hear sometimes when the word sex comes up or it's our sex life that is being hit, we put it in this category where it's like so different. And we kind of I don't want to, what, what's the saying? We lose the forest for the trees because it's like, actually, that's just one thing on the list of everything that you're doing over here. So it's not a sexual issue. It is in fact, a, a life challenge issue. Um, and we have, and, and my, if that had been kind of the silo, I would say, okay, so what are you going to do to get through this season where you also take care of yourself? And I can imagine if I were sitting in front of a set of parents going through this, they may look at me and go, I'm not sure I can make that choice (laughs) and I would have no judgment for it. And then again, what are we doing? We're going to grieve. That's not a choice that feels like you can do right now. So you will have a loss in this kind of, in, in this part of your life, I might reflect I'm concerned if there's no self-care anywhere. Yeah. and And I probably wouldn't be focused on sex at that point. Will you be able to stay the course? On whatever your child needs, so like you can't pour out of an empty cup kind of dynamic. Mm.
0: Um,
1: but at that point, my my focus probably wouldn't be on sex. Um, you know, uh, as far as the primary thing, but I would be acknowledging this is this is on the list of everything else. This is on the list of everything else. You don't feel like you have a choice because of of how intense this feels. Um, and now you're talking about caregiver burnout and the and the choices that you make, and it is just so hard. That is, gosh, it's like,
0: when I think of having to sit down and make that type of decision, like you said, like, what what are you going to do with it? It's like, well, do I have permission? Do I have permission to Mm -hmm. be able to be intimate with my spouse? You know, and I think this theme of not engaging in sex with your spouse or significant other is. I mean, it's the majority of cancer parents Mm -hmm. and it's, how do you even have that conversation? I mean, should they be going to counseling together, trying to process this as a, you know, as partners, or do they have tools that they can do in their own home without the therapist that say, okay, like, let's just be real. Let's put it out on the table. Let's figure out what are you comfortable with? What do you not, Mm -hmm. you know, but then I also see that playing out. If one person is like, we need to do this. Like I need this. And the other one starts getting mad because she's like, how can you even think about something like this right now?
1: So, well, I do think, um, I mean, yeah, I think I'm biased. I think the ideal is to help is for someone to help you have that conversation. Um, I think what could be really challenging if I'm, if I'm being honest So when I do a classic sex therapy case, and I do not think this would be classic, and I'll tell you why, um, I, I, I have a really strong clinical boundary that like, I'm not going to start problem solving your sex life until I've done a full assessment. That's best practices. I am saying that, and I'm going, that sounds so dumb (laughs) to, to, to have a boundary about that with, with parents in this situation. So I probably would, I probably would consider doing some, some quick coaching, Um, with, with some caveats, I probably would, because here's what happens. If I don't do the full assessment, there's something I, again, it would be an oversimplification to say the only thing that's in the way of your sex life right now Mm -hmm. is your battle with cancer as a family. And so I don't know what you're bringing in on the background. The truth was probably all these bad habits that are showing up in the context of cancer were already there. It's just like squeezing an orange. Now we know there's in fact, orange juice on the inside, you know, it's like, (laughs) You know, so it was probably there before some of these habits. And so it might not be as effective, if I'm being honest, to try to do some troubleshooting in a very acute time. Yeah. Um, But I probably would be willing um, under the circumstances, because I know we're talking about this, like, because the sex therapy assessment process is long. I mean, it's not short. And that's what most people don't know. Um, I spend about two to five hours with each spouse. Wow. Wow. Like we dig into family of origin. We dig into sex education. Like how did you get all your questions answered? We dig into your dating history and all your first experiences. We talk about a history of masturbation and how'd you learn to orgasm? If you have, we, and then we talk about your sexual process. Um, and I do that each individually and get like just buckets and buckets of information. And then I dovetail it together and go, okay, here's how you got to where you are. And here's how we'll undo it and that really and now everybody else you know you'll find differences on the amount of time but it's not typically short like a good true thorough assessment is not short um and i think about that and i'm like oh my gosh they're in the middle of like a very acute time like I probably would be willing to do quicker troubleshooting with the caveat of telling them, I don't have all the background information, so we could step in something, but -hmm. I will try to like help you. Um, So yeah, I think the ideal would be to work with a sex therapist um, just because the sex therapist gets to play the heavy. Like when you're telling your spouse, Hey, Hey, in fact, I am a female and I am not going to be wired like you. Like I get to go, Hey, she's female. And that's not gonna happen. (laughs) <laughs> um and like i get to play the heavy on that <laughs> yeah and we just play it the other way when she's like and i'm just being really stereotypical for the sake of of, of, of illustrating what, it a is. lot yeah. yes is is she's like well all you want is sex and you know and I'm like well god gave him an easy button when a man has uh an orgasm and ejaculates with his his wife and his partner He has a five to 600% oxytocin high. Wow.
0: And for those, that is women. Yeah. And can you explain oxytocin for those who don't even understand what oxytocin is?
1: Oxytocin is. is the feel good bonding hormone. There's also some vasopressin in there, which makes him feel like protective of you and like committed to you and y'all's relationship. And he also gets real high on life and then goes to sleep. Um, That actually is all very much so biologically happening. So when he says, I want to be close to you, please, let's please have sex that women are not primarily wired that way. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't feel close, but we like to feel close and then top it off with sex because I feel close to you. I want to have sex with you. Um, and so when men go, that would be a really easy way for me to feel connected with you. That is in fact true. And I want the men to understand your wife's not wired that way. Yeah. She in fact, wants to feel connected and close and safe and steady with you. And then she'll be open physical activity uh that's most of the time there now there are about 20 percent of couples where she's the higher drive so it's perfectly normal if it's the other way around um but generally you know she needs to feel connected i connection under the circumstances that you described adriana sound really really difficult Mm -hmm. yeah he has this easy button you in fact do not And that starts to create even a bigger chasm. So part of what we would do in sex therapy is just educate what's actually happening. Like I am right now. Yeah, Set everybody free from um, what we what we call misattributions, putting meaning to my partner or spouse's behavior that may or may not be accurate. Oh, she doesn't want sex like I do. She doesn't love me. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't get it. She's not sexual. No, yeah. she's female sexual. She's not male sexual. She doesn't have that button. Like I, I've, I wish I had the box in the drawer, the sex drawer. Also, I yeah. wish I had the easy button. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but I will also say, God wired females the way that He did for us to be the perfect complement to the way men are wired. So it's not that one's better than the other. Um, I'll go ahead and throw this in too because I think it would be interesting for your audience. It is not uncommon. In fact, it's very, very normal for a woman to start. When I coach sex therapy, I actually want women to start in neutral. If they don't, if they have a hard time finding their arousal and their drive and their want, I actually ask them to, to start in neutral, to just be willing. Is he a good guy? Is he doing the things? Like, are you just willing, you know, to kind of go there? And what's really, you know, interesting is a lot of women, their, 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 like desire for sex shows up into the process. Um, and so, yes, I've decided to have sex. We're good. Um, it's why some women will, you know, use the language. Yes, I can rally for that tonight. Yes, I can, you know, I'm willing. And, and some men take that very personally. And so we coach around that. That's really where she's at. It costs her energy to choose to have sex. It feels like a release and a recharge for you. That's not how that works for her. So yes, I will spend my energy and choose to invest and lean into this. And then she's about like 10 minutes into the process of, you know, kissing and floor play and connecting and all of that. And she goes, "Huh, I'm so glad I did this. This was a great idea. (laughs) And that is a really common progression for women. And so if I can, I probably would do a little bit of troubleshooting and and coaching with a couple that's in this situation. Like, hey, all you have to do is start in neutral, ma'am. If you can just start in neutral and be willing, um, sir, if you can hold that loosely. And not get your feelings hurt about that and not judge that you we have a better chance of of just being able to nurture your sexual relationship um and then the other thing i'd say is being willing to have nurturing sex like good enough sex is what we have a lot of the time we're not swinging from the chandeliers most of the time (laughs) and so that's just not what's happening we we have good enough to great sex about 80 percent of the time 20% 20% of the time in really healthy couples with no dysfunction, something flops. And I'm guessing that, that that percentage is really strong or maybe even goes up with couples who have this much trauma and grief going on. So like, don't shame spiral about, oh my gosh, you know, it's not working. No, it didn't work tonight, you know? Um, but this idea of nurturing sex, it kind of takes it a step up from pity and duty sex, which nobody really likes. That's really not yeah. good for anybody. Nobody Nobody likes to receive it. Nobody likes to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you can just get to nurturing sex where it's like, hey, I'm really not hungry for that tonight. Like my body, my soul, my emotions is not wanting for that. But I love you. And I can tell that that's a real thing for you. And I would like to be available and participate, um, you know, uh low energy required like please don't ask me to be like super over the top about it but like i want to have connecting sex with you and i yeah. would like to nurture your sex drive and so we do we we can do some coaching around allowing you guys to be different and it still be very intimate um when you yeah. have all these things piling on
0: i think um one of the things that i remember from one of our grad grad courses on sex was when women say I'm not in the mood. Um, Well, sometimes we're not in the mood as women, right. But allowing yourself to kind of, like you said, kind of go into that neutral place and say, okay, I might not be in the mood right now, but if I allow myself to not only, you know, engage, actively engage, like put myself in trying to enjoy it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I, if I participate in having sex with my spouse and I'm not there and I'm thinking the whole entire time, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't, you know, like that, yeah, all that negative no, That's
1: duty sex, that's pity yeah. and duty sex. So we're, we're not quite up yeah. in nurturing yet. It, there's a mentality that's gotta be there.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I feel like that would be something that these, the listeners could take with them into their bedroom, I guess, in a sense and say, okay, we probably don't feel like doing this. And there's probably a lot of, a a lot of questions whether we should be doing this, but Mm -hmm. it's okay. It's okay to have sex with your spouse, even though your child is really sick, you know? Yeah. And finding that balance. Um, because yeah, at the end of the day, it does, like you said, your spouse will feel way more connected, but also You, you feel more connected to your spouse as well, you know?
1: Yeah. I think if you can keep it out of pity and duty sex, regardless of how the process goes, I think you can still walk away feeling connected. So let's just say it was just, you know, just, it wasn't like super intense and it was pretty vanilla, but you both were emotionally there for the right reasons, you know? Um, he's embracing that she doesn't have a ton of energy to offer, but she cares about him. And that's really, that's known and genuine and received. And she feels like she's being given permission to show up as much as she can, but not more than she can. And she's not being punished for that. She's not being judged for that. Yeah. Then yes, you can have some good vanilla sex and there's not a problem with that. Like there's gotta be a space for that, especially with families going through really difficult seasons. You know, and so that's a couple going, Hey, my body feels really wound up and I just, I really want to have sex. And, and I really encourage, um, the, the person who's initiating to be honest about whatever it is for them. Like, I'm just real horny. Like I just feeling really wound up. I I can feel backed up because my body is still showing up biologically or, you know, I just want to feel close to you. And this feels like the really easy way to do that. I don't want to be a lazy spouse, but man, it'd be awesome. Like, are you willing? And, and what, what, what do you feel like? And for the other spouse to go, I am willing. That's a good word for it. I'm really tired. I mean, I, I know you're tired too. If I am allowed to be tired, if I am allowed, and, and then you can receive me where I'm at, I would like to show up for you in what, in the way that I can, but like, can you have lower expectations? This is not vacation sex. This is not, (laughs) this is not our kid doesn't have cancer sex, right? Like this is like in the context of really hard season, but I think we can do that. And it might be again, lower energy, a little bit more vanilla. And, but I think actually both parties walk away feeling very loved and accepted from an honest, open. Yes you know, conversation from both sides where there wasn't performance pressure, there wasn't um, unfair meaning making that we make about the other for not being like us. You know, that's what we would want to get to.
0: Yeah. Wow. I like your, it's
1: vanilla sex.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's
1: wrong? Hey, you know, what so, do you I'd call the other sex? Swinging from the chandeliers. <laughs> um, you know so there's a really good book. Um, I told you I would come with some resources. Um, there's a really good book called total intimacy. It's a little short book. Um, it's very practical. It talks about all the different types of intimacy. So emotional intimacy. And then it talks about the physical intimacy that doesn't end in genital sex, which actually most married couples forget how to do, you know, it's like showering together, cuddling naked. Um, uh, caressing and hugging and kissing without ending uh, in an orgasm. That's actually a really important part of the balanced diet that we, we kind of forget about. And then there is uh, it, it has a spectrum that talks about, um, you know, intercourse and genital sex. And in that chapter, it actually talks about the spectrum of sexual experiences from like zero to 10. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's got some really cute and like teeters on cheesy language, but like, if, if that bothers you just get past that, the spectrum's really brilliant because it talks about like zero to two is pity and duty sex. We've got to stay out of that category. And then once you get up to like three and four, you're like, it's like nurturing, connecting. Um, and then it goes up to 10, where it's like the really, you know, over the top fun stuff, which is different for every couple, but we're yeah. just talking about an intensity level. Um, most sex is four to seven. I look at couples who want eight to nine. I'm like, hey, that's great. That costs investment of time, energy, and often dollars. So if you want eight, nine, ten sex like that, you're gonna have to invest in that. And so there's some there's just some good accountability. You know, you you probably need to get a hotel. You're gonna have to get babysitters. You're gonna, probably gonna invest in different things that make you feel good. That's different for every couple. Whether that's lingerie or like I'm gonna go get my hair and nails done or whatever it is. Like you need to feel good about yourself. You're gonna spend dollars, time, and energy creating that context, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want eight, nine, ten. That's a big investment. And I don't know if the season that you and I are talking about is where you're going to do 8, 9, 10. So it's it's kind of managing expectations, but still making it a priority, which would be really helpful, I think, for most of these couples. I like that. And the name of the book is once again Total Intimacy. Um, it's by Doug Rosenau and Debbie Neal. Okay. It's a great book. You can get like, I think it's like 10 bucks on Amazon. It's a fantastic book.
0: Awesome. I want to go back for a second. Um, you had asked me a question a while ago about how I did essentially like self care and how that may play into the sex life, right? My sex life, not the sex
1: life, but or um, their sex life. We can keep it in third
0: person. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I know the majority, there's a really large percentage of women. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know as much on the men's side because I'm not privy to the men's, you know, dad cancer groups. I'm in a mom cancer group. Right. And so there's a lot of conversation about, um, gaining weight. Okay. And I, I'm just going to be flat out, like really honest here. Um, I gained like almost 15 pounds which is mm-hmm. weird because like the very first m- month and a half I lost weight. And then yeah. it was like, and I literally thought something hormonally must be wrong because I didn't feel like I was eating any differently. Well, it might've
1: been, it might've been your cortisol levels. Well, yeah. Cause I literally that does, lost, that does contribute to, to weight gain and a bunch of other things that aren't helpful for you. Like, I mean, cortisol is there. To I mean, it's, it's, it's in the feedback loop system of your, of it's a hormone in your body to help you like deal with adrenaline and come back down and all of that. But when you get overloaded with cortisol too long, it starts to wreak havoc. And one of the things that can make you do is gain weight.
0: Yeah. I gained like almost 15 pounds and I can tell you personally, like wanting to have sex with my husband, I was like, Oh my gosh, like,
1: I'm a fluffier version of myself. Like I was so fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) Like I I I too have had seasons of fluffiness. So, you know,
0: (laughs) I'm so self-conscious. Like, I know, you know, like he's used to seeing me a certain way for the past eight years. And all of a sudden I like 15 extra pounds of fluffiness. Like it, it made me so self-conscious and it was like a deterrent for me. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, like,
1: can we keep the lights off? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, you know, so I I am a woman, like I do understand that. Um, when we, we when we're in sex therapy training and we're training sex therapists, you know, one of the things we say is 99.9% of women have body image issues and the other 0.1% are probably lying about it. Um, you know, I think that body image is something that all women at some point in their life battle with, and we could, I mean, we could do like a four hour podcast on deep diving as to why, you know, we could go theological, we could go like systemic cultural, like messages Mm -hmm. or we could do a lot of things. Bottom line is most of us battle with it. Um, Anytime you go through a challenging and traumatic season, you're going to battle with it uh, a little bit more because you're just, your internal state is not in a good place. Anyway, yeah, um, and then yeah, I mean, you have you have legitimate reasons why weight gain um, and shift in how you take care of yourself. Like, let's let's say there's a mom out there who's like, "Well, I didn't gain anything, and I still don't like myself." And it's probably because like she's not experiencing taking care of herself. You know, there are people who won't gain a pound, but when they stop working out, they don't feel as good. It, it's an internal state of health that really influences how we experience the outside sometimes, or it's the mom who you know was privileged and blessed enough to have this really sweet self-care routine. She got her nails done, she got her hair done, she like did these things. And I'm not saying that's over the top. I have no judgment for that stuff. Yeah. But like that maybe that stopped, you know, in this battle. And so it could be just a, a wide variety of things mm-hmm. that contributes to that, but it does manifest for women a lot in how we feel about ourselves. Um and I yeah, it, it, <laughs> I I think that again this may fall in that category Adriana where we're talking about hey this is a battle you probably should have battled anyway and now you're really going to have to look at it because this no. thing in your life has pressed it to the front and made it intense and added extra challenge to it so um I think that there's a real beautiful place where women can get um where it's like you know we have a saying in sex therapy, that the most arousing thing for a man is a turned on woman. That I could see that being true. Yeah, which is why sometimes the men inadvertently put pressure on women to, to like respond in certain ways. And women are like, stop it. Um, (laughs) and we have to teach that, that like, Hey, that feels like pressure to her. She just wants to show up fully her. And he's going, I just think she's so rousing. Like when she's aroused, I'm aroused. Like that's fun for me. Like he just enjoys that part of us, you know, which is good. That's not a bad thing. Um, this is not from the research necessarily, but I would tell you anecdotally In my office, what is most arousing for a woman is when she feels sexy about herself. And sometimes like, and I, and I'm like, and I just look at the guys, I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. Like, I'm sure she does love certain things about you. And there are certain things about you that turn her on, but there's a point into like past the dopamine phase of dating and newlywedness where that excitement is not driving her arousal anymore. Mm -hmm. What turns on a woman is I'm into myself. Like I am a sexy goddess and I, (laughs) and, and and I look at, I mean, most women I've said, is this fit for you? They're like, yep. (laughs) And, and I'm going, okay, so what helps you feel good? And it's just different for every woman. Sometimes it is, um, you know, a poundage issue. Some women don't get as hung up about that. Um, but there are other things like if I'm not actively working out, I just feel fluffy even though that hasn't changed at all some women can embrace the pounds but it's something else about their body image that they struggle with so I think it's different for every woman I think women giving themselves permission to pay attention to that part and what that takes for them um, and realizing again this is just me like this is my my professional personal experience in my office and there are probably pieces of this in the research I just think women are most of the time turned on when they feel sexy about themselves. It is nothing that their, their husband prances across the room and does some move. Like, I mean, that's not what it's, it's like, when I feel sexy, I feel aroused, you know, like that's just how that works. And so, <laughs> and that is, you know what we have not, I mean, it's shifting, but we've not grown up in a culture that has given us permission to make that a priority and important. And then you add a battle of pediatric cancer on top of that. Yeah. So I'm sort of answering your question, but I want to give more context to it. Like if women want to feel into it, normally they got to be feeling themselves, you know, like they've got yeah. to be into themselves. Like that's really kind of what, what does it for most of them.
0: It's interesting that you say some people, the extra pounds don't really matter. And for me, I guess that I, because I had not gained weight in like eight years, even after having three kids, you know, like yeah. I back to my normal size, I was like, I'm good. But the minute like it went five pounds, I was like, Ooh, ooh, okay. You know? Yeah. Then you reach the 10 pounds and you're like, what the hell is going on? And then almost 15. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm I'm
1: fluffy. I don't want to be fluffy. (laughs) fluffy.
0: (laughs) But, um, you know, just even allowing myself there, you know, the self-care, like once I decided, okay, enough is enough. I've tried to change a little bit of my eating habits but i think because of the trauma that i'm going through and, and the amount of stress yourself, and the
1: cortisol I'm telling you yeah it's such a corporate most of the time i
0: literally went i was like okay let me get my thyroid check. let me get everything yeah. systemically checked make sure just there's nothing sure. wrong because you know it was throwing my whole body off and finally i said you know what i just i'm going to have to do the diet way and i've never been a dieter okay uh-huh. i've always been like let me eat healthier whatever right i'll slowly drop the weight, but that was not doing the trick for me. It was not coming off fast enough. And I was like, that's it. So I went on a quick diet. I guess I kind of keep up with it a little bit, but it's, it's kind of, it's
1: like dirty keto. Basically I just eat really low carb, but like dirty keto. Oh man. I just love that. You just use that term. (laughs) (laughs) It's dirty thing. Here's the thing. I think that, um, did it work for you?
0: It did. Like I lost weight pretty quickly but as I was losing weight, I was feeling better about myself, but in not in the sense, like just physically, but emotionally, I was like, I'm taking control of something in my life. I am, you know, I'm managing, I'm doing something for myself. And I, mm-hmm. I felt more empowered. I was like, not only am I going to lose weight, I'm going to start doing yada, 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 yada. And uh-huh. I added something else. And so it kind of built on itself. Like
1: well, myself, isn't that your self-care though? the self-care whatever it was your choices were about paying attention to yourself you started doing yeah. self-care
0: yeah so that progressively got better for me and then it also I'm gonna be like I said I wasn't gonna share anything about my sex life here but <laughs> but it did it I, hard. I know how do you talk about sex and not like bring a little bit in but it yeah in in my own personal
1: yeah, you know, with yeah. Sex, so, and I do think I'll say this: um, there is nothing wrong with caring in a healthy way about your weight and about being in shape and being healthy. Um, and it is so hard to find the balance of what is healthy and what's not healthy because you can overcorrect e- either way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I always worry about women in that regard. And so there's this tension between going, yeah, uh, you have to take care of yourself. So all of these pieces work, including sex and don't overcorrect because then you can actually do just as much damage in that direction by giving it too much power and too much importance. Like there's a part of me that's like, I just want women when they're in their fluffy stages because I, I mean, everybody reaches, I, the very few people are not going to have a fluffy stage at some point in life. I'm sorry. Like aging just wins eventually for everybody. Um, and, and I just think that there's a part of me as sex therapist from like, no, 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 just have great sex, fluffy. Like I also think that's a win, you know. So I think it's both like because I think that like some people can do a lot of self care and do fluffy sex, if that's what we're gonna call it, and enjoy it. <laughs> and then I think some people, you know, the the body image piece there is strong. And so losing a little bit of weight does help them. And it is in fact self care. And so I I don't know if there's like a really strong formula because I think it is about balance, probably. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Even if it was somebody who it's not the weight, like their nails, like you mentioned, right. Getting their nails done or getting their hair dyed. Cause I haven't done anything with my hair in like forever. Or,
1: or they haven't done their makeup in eight months. Because oh my of gosh. Special. I know. Yeah. I or they don't the shower as often as they yeah. used to. I mean, it's almost like going back to like a newborn phase where like some women really struggle to do self-care. It's like, that's not going to do anything for you feeling sexy.
0: I got to say two things. I remember leaving the hospital one day with Evan and there was this lady. She had this beautiful long maxi sundress on, right? Her hair was nice. She had some cute flip-flops. And here I am literally in tennis shoes, my hair in a bun, like no makeup t-shirt. Like I look like I was about to hit the gym basically. And I'm Uh like, she looks so cute. Like is this how people dress to go to the hospital? Like would I be dressing (laughs) like this to go to the hospital if my child wasn't in cancer? And maybe there are still parents who do that, but I feel like I personally have been like, oh hell, I just need to be comfortable all day long. Like
1: whatever. Yeah, you're there all day.
0: All day long. And it gets cold and yada, yada. I'm like a seasoned hospital person, I guess. I don't know. But I
1: was
0: like, man, she looks so cute. Maybe I need to go back to that. Like I would feel so cute wearing cute clothes, right? I haven't done it the way you
1: dress does influence how you feel yeah it does. and I'm not sure it should but like that's what I mean yes there's a thing to that um there's that maybe maybe I don't know Adriana so maybe it's like maybe doing that every once in a while but not all the time because you need comfort a lot of the time that's important yeah but maybe making I don't know whatever someone personally decided like hey one day a week I am going to Put on all the clothes and makeup and things, not be fancy, but just be fully dressed because I've realized that that impacts how I experience myself.
0: Yes. And the, so when I started doing podcasting, that was actually the first time I started doing my makeup and like
1: again. I <laughs> yeah.
0: And I was like, I still dread it. I hate it. But every time I look at the mirror after I've done my makeup, I'm like,
1: hey, you don't look so bad. Like you, know. <laughs> you clean up nice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you clean up nice, girl.
1: <laughs> yeah. So,
0: but um, I just wanted to add those two things because I thought those were kind of funny. It was kind of off topic, but.
1: Yeah, I think it's both. I think do the things that make you feel good and make sure that those are not keeping you from embracing your real self. Uh, yeah. It's probably both and.
0: So I want to ask, one more question from you. Um, well, no, I'm just kidding. I have two more.
1: That's okay. Um, <laughs> right
0: now, I'm like sorry. Um, so one of the things that I think I had to remind myself during this season of my life was don't turn away from my husband, turn towards him yeah. in my in my grief. And I think this is a struggle with couples because it's grieving, right? And people process their grief so differently. Yeah. And because it is a, it is the same traumatic event that they're processing, one person could feel okay or be handling it better. Not that they're feel okay, right? They're handling it better.
1: They're handling it differently.
0: Yeah, thank you for correcting. It's
1: different. and And some people's version of different may look um, more culturally acceptable or approvable. So you may feel like it's the better version. Um, but unless it has some really maladaptive pieces in it, like, yeah, I would be encouraging everybody to just be different.
0: And I think it's honoring that person has a different way of grieving and processing. Um, and kind of at times it's, you just have to respect it. Like Ricky and I process things way differently. And I have had to remind myself, keep turning, like lean into him, turn toward him, because it will be so easy for something like this to create such a gap between us. And you, like a lot of families, after they go through this, unfortunately do choose to part ways, you know, and a lot of that is obviously it's very complex, right? But I I can see how easily that one component of not turning toward my spouse could lead to us feeling even further and further apart because yeah, we do, we process differently. We analyze the situation differently. We have different approaches on what we think needs to Mm -hmm. be, the next best thing for him, you know, and, um, other families are struggling with that. Like that is, that is a very common cry. Like I'm trying to talk about cancer or I'm trying to do the research and my spouse literally doesn't do anything like Mm -hmm. doesn't want to talk about it. Don't want to, you know, address it. And here I am trying to talk and process and they feel so disconnected. And so that also plays into, their sex life, you know, like if you're not feeling mm-hmm. connected to the person that you're supposed to, mm-hmm. it's gonna make sex.
1: It's hard because you have. I mean, and you're speaking to it, Adriana, but um, I think there's different points where it creates distance rather than creating connection. So, yes. Um, at a baseline, you're doing this differently. You're doing the trauma differently. You're doing the grief differently. And um, some couples actually struggle at the differently point where it's like, if you're not doing it like me, then we're in disagreement. And I don't think there is disagreement as often as there are just differences. Now, some of those differences may be disagreements. Um, But I think some people there's a lot of space and chasms that start because they don't know how to be two different people. And now we're just getting into some basic couples work, right? Just amplified and intensified by the fact that it's happening in this very grief ridden, traumatic, long season. Um, so at that point it's basic couples work and, 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 and helping people realize like you need to be your own person. You need to be allowed to be your own person. And so does your spouse. And how do you, how do you, um, giving, giving each each of you permission to be different just at a baseline. There are some couples that are going to get stuck there. Yeah. The next is, uh, about when there are disagreements. Um, one in some cases, it feels like life and death in this context. And so we need to be really, really tender um, to how that's experienced um, at, you know, from your, from your partner, from your spouse. But I think sometimes if I would back it up just into like a regular couples conversation, I actually don't think a lot of couples that come into my office actually are very good at compromising Um, or taking turns, because I actually do not philosophically believe that you can do those two things, those two outcomes until you have been a good listener, until both parties feel fully heard and understood, a decision to agree to disagree, okay, I'm going to let you have your way on this, and that, you know, and or what a give and take, or a true compromise of middle ground, those things don't actually feel good unless both parties feel fully heard in where they are in their, their differences and their disagreement. And I don't think couples have those skills. And so, you know, I, there are couples who come in and are like, oh yeah, yeah we, we, we kind of take turns and give and take. And I'm, and I and they like, we don't feel connected. I was like, well, yeah, because you didn't do any listening before you did negotiations. I mean, that's, that's not helpful. Um, so I think you lose some couples there. And that's a skills issue. Um, And then, yeah, so I think you have a lot of couples probably walking into this who are terrible communicators and don't have those skills. And so it falls apart really quickly. So this one actually, to me, even though it's very difficult, the, the answer is a little bit more simple, which is like couples probably when they find themselves in this, like I would say, as soon as they can start um, like do something to work on your communication. Now I don't teach this style, but there is actually a really good online course. I believe it's called EPrep. I will send you the link so you can share it in the show notes. Um, But there is a course that you can completely take online and it's like video modules and interactive exercises to learn how to be a good communicator. And some of my, favorite mentors and colleagues, um, use this in their practice. Cause that is their method of teaching communication to their clients. And so I think it's really good. It's not my particular style. Um, but I think even something like that, like if you can't go in and get some help with a therapist, like there, here's an online program that does a really good job of teaching it, like go through a module once a week, just head in the direction of being better about it. I think would, would probably save some of those marriages where it, you can allow for difference, you can allow for communication to be, to be better in that.
0: It just, well, you know, it sounds overwhelming, the amount of work that needs to be done while Absolutely. your child is going through cancer. Um, but it is so critical. Like the, there have been points where the voice in my head tells me work, work on your marriage, you know, you've got to work on your marriage or you're going to basically introduce another trauma into mm. the children's life. And I do not want that for my children at all, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's work, but I'm hoping, you know, like I want my kids to have what they had before cancer came into our home, you know, like I, I want them to have that normalcy and seeing two parents who love and care for each other and, you know, teach and model as much positive behavior and relationship that we can, you know? And so, yeah. Short
1: of there being like an abusive relationship, which that's not what we're talking about here, but I, I do like to put that disclaimer out there. Um, short of that being present, I really do think if people walk away before they've done the work or that they, you know, they're through the, ba- through the cancer battle, um, or they've lost a child. I mean, I know that, that makes the divorce, um, statistics go up too. Um, if you leave before you've tried doing the work, I think you'll probably find yourself in the same situation in the next relationship, unless you're just committed to not having one anymore, which I I do. I do know some people that that's their choice. I, we are bringing, we will bring in the same habits that we have contributed to the relational challenges into the next relationship. I I am a believer of that. Um, It may not be under the same amount of stress, right? That is, that is reality. This is an exceptionally hard you know, season for these families. However, those habits that weren't helping that were there before the trauma and the grief hit. Um, it is a terribly unfair situation. The, the, yes, the load that these families and these parents go through and these couples, um, it is unfair. I I mean, I, I hope your audience hears that from me. Um, and I do think there are things that can help. And yes, all of them require some energy and work. And that, that's where it feels doubly unfair.
0: I know. I know. Cause you know, given any circumstance or in a normal circumstance, like working through your marriage, it's like, okay, I know I need to do this, but when you're.
1: And that's hard work. Yeah, Those couples that don't is like hard work. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're like, oh, so, this is hard. I'm like, no, mm, yeah. <laughs> <Like,
0: exactly. laughs> I know. That's why when I think of this, I'm like, oh man, the amount of work that you have to like actually put through it because it, it's not just going into, I feel like I'm gonna dive off into like clinical talk here, but it's not just going into this, like going into therapy thinking I gotta fix my spouse. There is a lot of work that you have to do on yourself. Like there are times during my like this season of our life, like I've had to take some really hard looks at myself and say, okay, what is my spouse trying to tell me? How do I feel about that? It hurts, it sucks. But there is some truth to it, and I can understand how I need to be better at blank 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 right fill in yeah, the dot whatever it is yeah and so yeah, like it it for it has forced me to have to you know work on myself too during this whole time that yeah, already dealing with cancer and it's it's hard it's even more hard because you're like you're already exhausted and you're like I don't have to deal with one more thing like I'd rather just like you know, take my time off and be like, you just go do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll see each other when this is done and over with, you know, but it's not how it works. And that's not,
1: no, it's not. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about what's the saying, like, don't give a man fish, teach a man to fish. Okay. Like nobody wants to be taught how to fish while you're battling cancer. Yeah. But like, that's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit we're talking about. Like there's, um, mental health and people human work that's not western medicine and all of that it's just it is it is sort of like we have to get underneath something um you are inspiring me adriana i am i it is a unique season though and there are people who specialize working with you know individuals and persons with cancer that's not my specialty but I do think we probably need to lean in and figure out how to maybe give them some fish. Yeah. <laughs> we could teach them the fish later. Right. Um, there's gotta be some fish, middle ground there. Literally like trying to buy you know, your- like, I'm just going to hand you some fish at this point. Cause I feel, I feel like I feel a lot of compassion. So yeah, there needs to be some middle ground there. That that's where it moves outside of my specialty, to be honest. Um, however, I do want couples if, if they're facing these challenges to have hope that even, even if they have to get through, you know the battle um, and or the loss and or whatever it is, the like there there is healing to be had on the other side when they have more bandwidth. I, I maybe I want them to hear that too.
0: Well, I really really enjoyed that. Like I feel like there's a lot that you were able to share. Hopefully the listeners were able to take something you know that they can apply to their personal life. Um, I feel like I could probably talk to you about a million other topics and keep going.
1: We'd have fun. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So um, I know you mentioned the possibility of collaborating with some other things in the future for other topics. Yeah. So yeah. I would oh, do love do that. And I think the audience would love that too. I've had so many people um, say how excited they are about, this topic in general, you know?
1: Well, yeah, Uh, everybody gets excited when you talk about sex. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going to tune in. I'm not going (laughs) to tell anybody, but I'm going to tune in.
0: (laughs) I know, I know. Well, especially since there's not really anything that addresses sex with parents going through pediatric Mm -hmm. cancer. And so I'm like, "This this will be helpful. But I think the big takeaway for me in the conversation, other than the tools that you gave us, is it would be beneficial to still seek out help while your child yeah. is in treatment. Um, Cause it is. It just is- to hold
1: it together. To
0: hold just it together, to help. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just to have someone to help you hold it together. And there are some therapists, again, I'm real biased, man. I am picky on my referrals. Like I would not trust every therapist with that. So I would be really picky about that, that referral process. Um, like someone who knows to really just like, don't deep dive too quickly. Just help us hold it together. Help us troubleshoot some stuff. That's, it's really probably what parents in that particular season need.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jenna. It was so good catching up with you. It was good seeing your face. I just like talking to you. Like, that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to do it again next time. All right. we will talk to you soon. If you have found this podcast helpful, or you just love the mission for family chemotherapy, please kindly rate this podcast. If you want to support this podcast and ministry, please consider becoming a patron. You can visit patreon.com forward slash family chemotherapy. You can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from Family Chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.